0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 281. Today is Sunday the 10th of June, 2018, and this interview is with Jack Aldrich. Jack is an acclaimed global futurist, keynote speaker including at TEDx, and best-selling author. In this conversation, we discuss with Jack why business executives need to unlearn and embrace ambiguity in order better to lead, how leaders should be asking better questions, how change comes about, the most exciting prospective new technologies, as well as those that keep Jack up at night. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. So Jack Aldrich, great to have you on the show. I'm, I'm very glad that we finally made this happen. I've had you on my radar. You are a futurist from across the pond in Minneapolis, um, and you've written a number of great books. The book that I got uh, very excited about was this idea of Foresight 2020, which you wrote um, a few years ago. So that was in 2012, I believe. You're also the, the head of or the founder of the School of Unlearning. So let's say how about in your own words, Jack, how you'd like to describe yourself to the listeners, and then we'll get into the thick of things.
1: Well, thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, the short answer is I do describe myself as a, a futurist, but really I, I'm primarily a, a thinker. I, I spend a lot of time reading, researching, and then thinking about the future. But uh, the way I always like to described my job as, I call it the Big AHA, and that's an acronym and it stands for Awareness, Humility, and Action. I help people and organizations become aware of how the world is changing, humility to the idea that the way that they did things yesterday might not be sufficient moving forward, but then ultimately I help them take actions to create the future that they want for themselves, their communities, and their organizations.
0: Well, I love that because um, when I was running Redkin, which is one of the brand's owned by L'Oreal, we used to do an enormous amount of education. In fact we were really the leaders in the in the industry and we over invested compared to the others. Anyway, one of the key things that we always used to have within our education were aha moments. And and the thing that it makes me think of is insights. And and you know that if you can spark that emotional intrigue that ah, I get it. Then I think also insights is, is, is having the humility to not know everything you think you already know and, and to be aware of what you don't know that you know. Like the more you know, the more you don't know kind of feeling.
1: Yeah, that's, absolutely, that's absolutely right. I mean, and, and it's one of the reasons why I, I focus a lot on unlearning. As you said, I mean, the more we learn, the more we know, the more we recognize we don't know and you know so often we're focused on what we do know that we've failed to appreciate Oh, there's this whole other world of information knowledge that is expanding and it's accelerating and of course there are going to be new discoveries that challenge a lot of the things that we think we know about ourselves our business our business model our customers our competitors that change is happening fast so if you're
0: if you created the school of unlearning. Uh, I, I'm wondering whether that's an academic uh, concept or it's just a, you know, a, a name for helping people to unlearn the things they've learned in the past. But does it does it also put into question the way we learn in the first place?
1: It does, and I think one of my big premises as a futurist, and many futurists are saying the exact same thing, is that the biggest change out there today is the rate of change itself. It is. Accelerating, but in this new world of accelerating change, sort of counterintuitively, answers become less and less helpful. And what we need to do is we have to learn to ask better questions about the future. But even that notion of sort of focusing on learning is something that we have to unlearn and that we have to get more comfortable just letting go of our old assumptions, knowledge. Ideas about the world, because from my perspective, not everything is changing, but a lot of things are are changing quite rapidly
0: so it's almost about glorifying ignorance <laughs> i mean or at least um, accepting that you have ignorance
1: absolutely I actually think the wisest people out there are are those who recognize that they're not that wise, that there's always more that they don't know. Um, There's a wonderful quote, I'm probably getting it wrong, but the wise person, when he recognizes that he's not as wise as he was yesterday, is in fact wiser. Is that there will always be something that we unlearn, a new observation that we see, a new insight that we Here And so I think it's this idea of letting go. Once once we can let go, then our minds can be open to new and better possibilities.
0: Yeah, especially if we have some sort of limiting beliefs that underpin what we know.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And I think that's one of the... Some of our assumptions are so deeply embedded, we don't even know that they're assumptions. Mm. We simply hold them as truths. And uh, I suspect there are some things that I hold as truths that are, in fact, assumptions. And so just by me being aware of the possibility that some of these things I hold as truths might just be assumptions, might help me then change a little bit faster in the future. And the reason this idea of changing fast is so important is... I mean, everyone gets Darwin's quote wrong. It's not the survival of the fittest, it's those who can adapt and change the fastest that are gonna be those that survive and prosper in the future. And so that's why I think change, adaptability, and this notion of unlearning are so critical to embracing and understanding the future.
0: I love it. So let's I wanted to go into this notion of asking better questions because especially when we look at data science uh, as data scientists, one of the founding principles of being a good data scientist is to, is to ask the right questions. You say to ask the better questions, but how does one go about, and when should one go about asking those better questions in business? Because you know, if you spend your time asking questions, maybe you never get into action point.
1: First, uh, there's a wonderful quote. I'm not a big fan of uh, Tony Robbins, but he does have a wonderful quote that says that Successful organizations and successful individuals ask better questions. And because they ask better questions, they take better action, which then creates their future. But this notion, again, I just want to go back to this idea of accelerating change, that we have to spend more time with questions. There's a wonderful quote from Einstein, and someone apparently once asked him, and I don't know if this is a true story or not, but it makes a wonderful point. And someone posed to me and said, you have an hour to um, sort of solve a problem and your life depends on it. How would you spend that hour? And his answer was, well, I'd spend the first 55 minutes making sure I was asking the right question. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of corporations simply aren't asking the right questions about the future. I mean, they're sort of focused on incremental Improvements when, in fact, they should be thinking about innovating in fundamentally different ways. How is your business changing? How is your business model changing? How are your customers changing? Are there new competitors who are thinking about some of these technologies and trends that are fundamentally at odds with how you are thinking about your business? Um, but could I just give you this? What I want to go back to your idea of data analytics, mm-hmm. and have you ever heard the story of Abraham Wald? No, go for it. No, so in in the Second World War, uh, Allied commanders our Allied airplanes were getting shot up at an astounding rate, and so they were coming. And so the Allied commanders wanted to protect the planes. Well, the planes came back, and they were primarily shot up in the fuselage, and so. 18 of these 19 scientists who were charged with helping protect the planes said, oh, well, let's reinforce with light armor the fuselage. But Abraham Walt said, no, 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 that's wrong. Here's what you're not seeing. You're not seeing the planes that don't come back, and those are the ones that we really wanted to protect. So counterintuitively, the planes that came back with their fuselage shot up means we don't have to reinforce those areas, and counterintuitively, we have to reinforce the areas that don't have bullet holes. To me, that's a wonderful example of challenging assumptions. And he asked a better question What aren't we seeing? And I think as business leaders, we all need to be asking ourselves that question What aren't we seeing? What don't I know? What aren't I hearing? How might the world be changing? And so a long answer to why questions, I think, hmm. are so important.
0: But I love it. I love the, the military and analogy, analogy, as you say, um, as well. So, um, Jack, when, when uh, we're talking about this, a lot of the times when we're going along with the companies you're working with, it's, it seems to be more about avoiding being disrupted as opposed to being disruptive. Um, how do you how do you approach your clients when you're talking about that and and where where should they focus their energies whether it's headspace or money resources in in terms of approaching disruption because you can either be disrupted or disruptor
1: right so what I advise my clients to do and I speak a lot about humility but one of the primary exercises I use with all of my clients is a pre-mortem And a pre-mortem is the opposite of a post-mortem. A post-mortem, a company like Kodak or Blockbuster or BlackBerry goes out of business and Harvard Business Review does a case study. It's like, what can we learn from that? Well, that's great for us, but not so good for those companies that went bankrupt. A pre-mortem has a little more humility baked into it. What I say to my business clients is, imagine it's five years in the future and you are out of business, Just imagine that scenario and have a candid conversation now with your team about how might your business, in fact, go out of business. And this is where leaders really need to be candid and be honest about the threats that they are facing. Now, that sounds like a really depressing question, but I argue it's a really empowering question because after you have that candid conversation, I think you'll come to a recognition that there is in fact a possibility your business, regardless of what it is, might be gone in five years. But then the conversation pivots to, okay, if we are being disrupted, what then do we need to do to survive? How do we need to change? How do we need to think about our product differently? Are there new market segments we can go into? Are there ways that we can disrupt other businesses? So... From my perspective, the pre-mortem is one of the most powerful exercises I use, and I encourage my clients to do it on a annual basis. Just because the world's changing that fast, and there are going to be new threats in 2019 that didn't exist in 2018.
0: I, I'm just wondering, listening to you, Jack, about the this notion of pre-mortem. I, I I tend to look at it maybe from the other side, and I suppose it's post-mortem to use your term, but the idea of writing your legacy or you know the headstone of your of your grave. And, and what is it that you'd like to have featured as part of who you were as an individual or as a company? And, and how that legacy, the idea should be uplifting and uh, elevating, if you will, you know, in terms of missionary, as opposed to, well, I just made a lot of money all my life. Uh, it's another way of, well, it's another, another approach anyway. I don't know if it has the same answer, though.
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, no, I think that is an equally powerful Approach. Just to use another historical analogy, years ago, uh, maybe many of your listeners won't be familiar, but in America, Lewis and Clark are heralded as two great American explorers, and they're really responsible. They were the first uh, Americans to essentially transverse the whole continent. But they were really motivated by this incredibly powerful vision of the future. And it's one that they shared with with Thomas Jefferson. But because of that vision, they actually really challenged a lot of their assumptions. And I I won't get into the story, but Meriwether Lewis and William Clark were co equals. They were military officers, which is sort of the idea of co equals was an unheard of idea in the military. And it still is today, but They were undertaking a journey so daunting that they had to think differently. And they assembled this incredibly diverse team of individuals because they knew that no one individual sort of had the necessary skills to do all of this. But uh, to your point, they were really motivated more by this powerful Vision of the future, and so I think it can be just as effective your approach.
0: And it seems like they they, they embodied or espouse many of the things, the principles that are useful today. This notion of diversity of opinion, diversity of expertises, uh, and maybe the humility to be co-equals, because you know one you, you, one of you has to. Dis- usually, there's always notion of one is on top, but uh, co COs is a tricky style of leadership, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it uh, it really is. And I don't mean to suggest that it works in every situation. Uh, I'm now going to take the conversation in a slightly different way. Uh, I, I think one of the most powerful principles of navigating the future is the ability to embrace ambiguity. Too often we like to think our leaders, you know, see the world in black and white, and they definitely know which way to go. I think the most effective leaders of the future, or even today, are those individuals who can embrace ambiguity that the world is going to change. And so the information you and I have today might tell us to take this one particular path. But you know what? Tomorrow there's going to be new and different information and new insights, and that might require us to... To change our path and maybe even reverse our direction but um, and so I spend a lot of time trying to help my clients learn how to embrace ambiguity I think it's an important principle for the future and it's also integral to helping people unlearn uh, a little bit uh, faster
0: does it do you think it also means to embrace imperfection
1: Uh, yes I I do In fact, in my book, *Higher Unlearning, one of my lessons is practice imperfection. And here's the story I like to tell. And and apparently this is true in a lot of different cultures. Uh, In uh, Persian rug weavers, Amish knitters, Navajo Indians, when they are creating something, they purposely put an imperfection in that rug or in that quilt as quickly as possible. And the reason they do that is... Because suddenly, if they know there's an imperfection, they're not worrying about making it perfect. And as a result, they actually weave faster, they make more rugs. And as a result, they actually get closer to perfection just be- through virtue of experience and doing things, iterating and working faster. And so to me, it's this wonderful metaphor for individuals and organizations have to be okay with imperfection, that uh, we have to get more comfortable experimenting, trying different things. You know why? Because none of us fully know what's going to work in the future. But too often, organizations hide behind perfection. It's like, oh, everything has to be perfect. We need a little more data. It's like, no, no, you don't. You just have to move, and that's going to require you to embrace imperfection.
0: I love that, Jack. So, wow, I've got a number of new things I've learned from you already. That's really cool. So, um, in your book, so it's called Foresight, the one I read anyway, because I haven't read all of your books. You have many. Um, But Foresight 2020, we're now 18 months away from the daunting day of 2020. A Futurist Explores the Transforming Tomorrow, which you wrote with Simon Anderson. And, um, And I thought it was a great read. One of the things that struck me at the same time is we try to... Encourage people to take a new approach, whether it's unlearning or um, you know embracing ambiguity. Your first chapter, the scenarios, all in my opinion, seem to start on a negative angle, as in some catastrophe comes around and it's going to inspire us to change. And I, I was wondering how you went through all those ideas, because I, I love your you know creativity and the way you. You do some role-playing and sort of playing this out, if you will. But it, is it possible for us to think about catastrophic, no, well not, you know, massive change in a, in a fantastically positive way uh, from all these new technologies? Or is it human condition that we have to wait for some miserable, horrible event to wake up?
1: Wonderful question, and just so you know, as you might remember, at the beginning of the book, I simply say these are scenarios, but what I'm trying to do in that uh, first chapter is to say, look, take all of my subsequent chapters with a grain of salt, that they're simply <clears throat> scenarios, that I am not claiming that I know how the future is going to unfold. But I think, I can't remember my exact thinking as I was writing that book, but uh, I I suspect one of the reasons why they have a more negative tone is i found that sometimes I have to shock my readers into thinking unthinkable things just so they're slightly more open to, to change. But your point about an optimistic future is, I mean, One of the things that really depresses me about today's news cycle are many people live today and they think that today is worse than the world of yesteryear. And that is simply not true. We are living at the best time in human history. The idea that you might, or the possibility that you might die in a war, or because of a disease, or because of starvation, has never been lowered. The odds of you being a victim of crime. Have never been lower. It doesn't really feel that way because we're inundated with information of the negative. So uh, I guess I kind of regret that uh, if my book came across as uh, overly negative, that I left a a negative impression of the future. No, and I don't.
0: I don't mean to say you are a doomsday player. That wasn't at all my intention either. It's just the idea of how does one provoke, you know, get people to wake up. Uh, and you know, cut through the noise uh it seems to me and you know I'm not, it wasn 't a criticism so much as a an observation that that 's the only thing that gets us out of bed is fear or out of you know into change
1: yeah that 's true and i will I will tell you that uh, most of the talks and I give a fair number of keynotes every year uh, have an ample dose of optimism about the future, but then also fear, and the reason I purposely do that is. A lot of people simply aren't motivated by the opportunity of change, and so they need to be scared into change. And I say, look, whether you like this or not, your world is changing. And yes, it might be a little scary, but at the end of the day, you are going to have to change some of your thoughts, behaviors, and actions in order to uh, survive and prosper in this new future. And, and so I wish everyone was motivated by the opportunity that the future presents, but I think some people, and I include myself in this camp sometime, have to be sort of scared and kicked in the rear a little bit to say, move it along, the world's changing whether you like it or not.
0: I, I have to agree with you. I mean, in terms of the observation, my also my other observation yet is that if one is only motivated by money or, or doing the job, then the, the sort of Pavlovian return to my habits is is sort of a necessary, almost a you know, regular condition anyway. If you have a purpose and you know why you're doing it, then that, I think, gives you a little bit more awareness, a little bit more cutting edge to your desire because you are doing something that's bigger than just yourself.
1: Yeah, that's right. And... I spend a lot of time, and uh, well, a lot of I don't think you could be a futurist unless you are optimistic about the future. And, and when I think about the future, I mean, look at everything that ails society today environmental issues, healthcare issues, education issues, transportation issues on each and every one of those issues, I see this unbelievably positive and bright future. I mean, in a world of sort of the sharing economy and autonomous vehicles, transportation is going to be in a, a, a service. And the amount of money you spend on transportation is going to be a fraction of what we spend today. In healthcare, we're going to move from treating disease after it's occurred to preventing it from ever happening in the first place. In terms of education, I mean, online education is getting extraordinarily good. New advances in artificial intelligence are going to help deliver personalized, customized learning. that I think that education is going to be a fraction of the cost that it is today. Uh, and then in energy, I mean, the advances in solar, wind power, tidal power, battery storage technology, fuel cell technology, potentially even fusion technology, the idea of cheap, clean, sustainable energy is a real possibility. I mean, so suddenly think about a future like that. To me, that is incredibly bright, wonderful, and optimistic, but at the end of the day, we have to take action. We have to move in that direction. I think that the companies and the organizations and individuals that hold that bright vision in, in front of them are, are going to be the, those that succeed in the future.
0: Yeah, and power through the, the hassle of change. So, uh, Jack, in, in, yeah. in, in 2020, uh, of course, as well as your other books like, you know, uh, how nanotechnology will change the future of your business, you, you obviously are covering a lot of different technologies. And I was wondering, with hindsight, or at least, you know, where we are today in terms of the new technologies, which ones are outperforming your expectations uh, as they were set back in 2012 uh, or more, maybe just more up to date? Which ones are you most excited about right now as we move into 2020?
1: I am uh, both most excited and what has outpaced my book is the advances in artificial intelligence. That there is, I mean, I weave into some of my scenarios advances in artificial intelligence, but even I fail to appreciate sort of the the autocatalytic process behind artificial intelligence in the sense that AI can teach itself to get smarter and faster. And as a result, it is growing exponentially smarter. And the best example out there uh, is, you know, Tesla and other cars are now putting AI in their cars. And as a result, their cars are getting Every Tesla out there is sharing all of its driving lessons with all 100,000 other cars out there. And and those 100,000 cars are then sharing its lessons back to that other individual car. And so these cars are just getting really smart. And Elon Musk has said, in two years, we think we're going to be able to prevent 90% of all accidents. Now, I'm not sure if you'll quite meet that scenario, but to me... That it's a wonderful example of how AI is advancing faster than I thought. And as a result, it's changing the business model. Tesla is now just baking insurance into its annual maintenance fee to say, you know what, no insurance company is going to give you a 90% discount on your auto insurance. But you know what, we are, because we're so confident our cars are getting that much smarter and they're going to keep you that much safer. So... Uh, I'm really excited about AI's ability to move into preventative health care to help us better manage our energy usage and things like that. So uh, I missed how fast it's moving, and uh, it's the one I'm personally most excited about. The technology that I completely missed is blockchain. Mm. I mean, I didn't it wasn't even on my radar screen. I don't think it was on, you know, it was on a few people's radar screens back in 2012, but not mine and so that's one that I simply completely missed and uh, it's one of the reasons why you'll see I weave humility into my books and talks a lot more is that even I have to keep in mind there are things that are happening that I simply don't know Uh, and we need to stay vigilant to some of these new technologies
0: well I, I, I compensate my ignorance with my network i i have I, I talk about having a digital i q or you like a new tech i q my digital i q and the idea is you know how much do you think you know and and the tricky part of the answer is, well, what's a ten and and the second part that's tricky is well, let's say you have an eight today, but that can slip to seven to six in a hurry if you don't stay up with it so it's an actually it's an organic or a moving target, and two, it's impossible to know everything. So you're better off accepting that you you know you can do your best and compensate by having a great network.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I give out to my clients uh I call it my Think Week resource guide and it's sort of a list of my network, as well as periodicals and other sources I use to stay on top of the future, but it, the network is on the top. And I'm going to add you to the list, but mm-hmm. there's another fellow in uh, London, Azeem. uh He writes a wonderful newsletter called uh, The Exponential – I think it's just called The Exponential Newsletter. But every Sunday he sends it out. Ross Dawson is a futurist down in Australia who I really like. Sure. Gerard Leonard is a futurist in Switzerland who does wonderful things. And so I've never met any of them personally, but they're all part of my network, and they really help me stay on top of these trends. And I suspect there are hundreds of others, but uh, the network is the only way to to hope to, uh, to stay abreast of, today's staggering pace of
0: change well let me say jack you'll be you'll be uh an ongoing part of mine um that's great and i'll put all those into the show notes one of the um questions i like to ask people who are looking into the future is what keeps you up at night what with your knowledge of what's going forward what are the things that worry you most
1: two things first the advances in gene editing technology. Uh, keep me up at night. I think gene editing technology, CRISPR technology, has this wonderful ability to address a significant number of diseases and we're going to be able to use it to increase agricultural production and other things. So it has a, a number of wonderful possibilities. But the idea that um, even people in their homes are now on the verge of being able to uh, to tinker with um, genes and putting new genes in and disabling existing genes is something that I think, well, it does keep me up at night. So that would be one. And then second is I I don't quite, I'm actually really optimistic and bullish about advances in artificial intelligence, but here's where I do have some humility. I don't know what I don't know. And so this idea that AI, at some point, will in fact exceed human intelligence It is a real possibility. And then once AI does that, it will start doing things that are probably the right thing to do, but we humans won't be able to understand why why AI has made the decisions it has made. And so that to me is another legitimate concern. Uh, So I'd say those two are what most keep me up.
0: Yeah, if no. if you look at the the way marketers use technologies, uh, consistently, they will abuse them until they're no longer trustworthy, and and the ethical manners that are used uh, need laws to come into place retroactively. Whereas what I think is needed now, uh, and it's, we're I'm, I'm speaking at this event called Cogex in London about AI. Um is a higher dose of ethics uh, because we need to think about these things prior to having to write laws about them because ultimately we're the ones writing the code and if we're writing code without ethical structures in our mind then the chances are we'll end up with machines learning things which we shouldn't have them learning in the first place.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And let me just say, uh, first, I want to turn the question back to you because I'm curious what you think, but one other area that, I mean, the pace of technological change is happening so fast. Uh, I am confident that new jobs and new industries will be created in the future, but I'm concerned in the foreseeable future, the pace of change is going to happen so fast that not only will taxi drivers and truck drivers lose their job, uh, I fear that AI is going to displace Uh, some bankers, doctors, lawyers, and some of these individuals will be able to retrain themselves and move into new positions. But I think it's disingenuous to say that all of these individuals are going to be rapidly be retrained. And so the, the third thing that sort of keeps me up at night is job displacement and the pace and how we as a society ethically deal with that issue. So to say a truck driver could just be retrained as a coder Strikes me as uh, disingenuous, Um, and so how do we as a society deal with that? Yeah, especially uh, especially
0: with somebody. I mean, just to go on, yeah, just to go on with that, Jack. The the notion of this changeover. The problem is a lot of lethargic organizations and institutions are responsible for having to do this retraining that we're talking about, and they are clearly not the agile groups that are, and yet. They employ so many people, and and what's what I see happening is a, a, a worsening of the distribution between the rich and the poor, because some small, smart, agile entrepreneur is going to come up with a better way to to deliver a better service, and why shouldn't they get paid for that? And yet the problem is we'll leave in the dust, whereas you know a little group of ten might do a, you know do this project, it displaces a thousand people and does it better we still have to figure out what to do with the 990 other people who don't have a job anymore. Precisely. As far as what keeps me up at night, um, I would say I, I my biggest concern is less about the technology, maybe, but more about our mindset. And uh, hmm. I see media uh, in need of, of straightening out um, I, I, I spend a lot of time with people in media and, and a lot of great, great people in media are trying to address this. But I think a media's narrative isn't good. The divisiveness and the political factions around the world isn't good, uh, not to mention sort of the undercurrents of global warming and terrorism. And so I think that we have a um, I, I just I get worried about us going into our own little corners, pulling the rug or the cover over ourselves and not worrying about others. And I'm I'm far from a philanthropist, uh, but it's it's just it concerns me how we are are not doing enough research into other people's perspectives, understanding diversity, and grappling together for this one earth as opposed to this sort of invi- invasive and you know horrible infighting we are we're having.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And one of the things again, I don't want to sort of focus on the negative the negative and the depressing aspects, but the idea that advances in artificial intelligence will in fact, and they already are <clears throat> allowing people to, to make fake videos in which right. uh, uh, Barack Obama or Donald Trump are saying very plausible things, and it looks and sounds as though they are in fact saying those very things, but they've just been created through technology, and they feed into people's existing biases, and I think with the pace of these technologies I mean a, a lie literally gets halfway around the earth before the truth gets its pants on and hmm. in this new world of fake bogus videos it's it's a danger that uh, that I think is another thing that keeps me up at night and I think we're only starting to see the the start of this and I don't quite know what the answer to to deal with this is other than vigilance is to say we have to stay skeptical if something seems sort of too true or a little fishy, you know, to be skeptical of uh, everything that we digest.
0: And my, and my second, I agree with you. And my second idea would be to give before expecting in return and to continue to sort of give forward, as they say sometimes, uh, because we have to model the behavior we want. If we have an optimistic view, we have to have that actions that show through and in our own little world, you're the only little community that I have around me. That's what I try to live every day. So, Jack, our time is up. It's been wonderful having you on the show. Um, tell me uh, if you have any new book or any new thing you'd like to uh, plug. Go ahead but or and tell us how people can reach out, be in touch with you, follow what you do, and uh, buy some of your books.
1: Yeah, so the, the book I'm currently finishing up is called Business as Unusual. The Big Aha, and again, the aha stands for awareness, humility, and action. But the book that I want to work after that is called A More Natural Future. I mean, I think that I want to spend more time creating and spending my effort and energy creating a positive future. And so that's what I hope to begin working on shortly thereafter. The easiest way to follow me is just uh, my name, which is Jack Aldrich, U-L-D, R I C H dot com. So Jack My books, my blog, my uh, other videos are all available. Free resources are on my uh, my website. I like to help people uh, think about the future and create their own future.
0: And when can we expect business as usual to come out? Unusual, sorry, to come out.
1: Uh, the fall of 2018. All right, brilliant.
0: Jack, thanks for coming on the show. Great to have you. And uh, let's keep this world going in the right direction
1: wonderful. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MintoDialogue.com If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sax's Paint.
2: Oh, film me with all your colors, any different way To rid me of the gray And heal me With all your imperfections that you mentioned trips